Thank you for downloading the South Everett Foursquare podcast. This is Pastor Chris Pepler, and you've joined us for our journey through the New Testament with the aid of the Bible Project. Thanks for tuning in. You can find us live and in person every Sunday morning at the Village on Casino Road at 10.30 a.m. You can also visit us on our website, southeverett.org. We look forward to seeing you soon.
And this is what Brennan Manning said. To live by grace means to acknowledge my whole life story. The light side and the dark. In admitting my shadow side, I learn who I am and what God's grace means. And I think this is definitely the most compelling part of the gospel of Jesus, is that we are entirely unable to validate our own righteousness. We have no ability to pay for our own sin or to make ourselves right with God. None. There is nothing we can do except flat, full-out surrender and confess our brokenness, and he makes us righteous. It's owning our whole story. That's the compelling thing about the church of Jesus, not that we beat our chests and talk about church attendance and how much we give and how much we love the poor. It's saying, I have nothing without Jesus. So let me tell you my whole story and how God has redeemed all the parts, even the most broken parts. That's what an unbelieving world finds compelling about Jesus, is that we're just as broken. Jesus makes us righteous. And Matthew, a Jewish man, so this is important understanding, he was Jewish by nature, and he was a ridiculously notorious sinner. Everybody knew that Matthew was a sinner. He was deeply despised by his own people. He was held uh, a little bit hostage and tempted and enticed by the Roman government who called him into this position and said, hey, you want to rip off your own people? We'll pay you well for it. You have influence, relational influence. You understand the culture, and we want their money. If we give you a little bit on the side, would you take them for everything that they're worth? And Matthew said, yep. And the people knew it. He was so hated, Matthew was so hated by his own people that he was forbidden from entering into the synagogue. He couldn't even go worship with his own people because of the way that he betrayed his own people. And in fact, in, in the Talmud, which is this long list of laws that the Jewish people put together, God gave us ten laws, right? The Jewish people added an additional 603 laws to the equation, and they called it the Talmud. It was this book of all the rules and all the things. But think about for a time in your life if you've ever felt like an outcast. Again, you can close your eyes if you want. When was the time in your life when you felt least connected, most judged, most estranged, most un misunderstood, most rejected? When was a time like that in your own life? Rejected because uh, of some belief, potentially, or some behavior? Imagine that moment, because Jesus, when approaching Matthew, was approaching someone who felt rejected and unloved and despised by his own. And what he was experiencing from Jesus, a Jewish man, by the way, God knew that the way to reach Matthew in the depths of his pain was to be approached by someone who represented that pain. A Jewish man approached Matthew and said, even in the midst of your sin, in your corruption, I still love you. That's what's happening in this interaction in Matthew chapter 9. You see, Jesus approached Matthew at face value. That's what acceptance is. To accept something is just to receive it for what it is. 
make space for what it is, and then make some assessments based on those things. But to accept someone doesn't mean that you have to agree with them. It doesn't mean that you have to celebrate their behavior or their actions. It just means that I'm going to give you the benefit of the doubt for a minute, Matthew. If I love you with a different kind of love, a more intentional, sacrificial, self-sacrificial love, will you change your tune? And Matthew did. All of a sudden, Matthew was encountering Jesus, but Jesus didn't really actually give him much of a choice. There wasn't a lot of gray area here. There was no middle ground. He says, you can follow me or you can stay on your current course. Matthew couldn't say things like, you know what, I think I'll accept you, but I'm going to stay here in my little booth and just keep ripping off people in your name. Like, not an option. You couldn't just accept the belief of Jesus and continue the behavior of the world and be called a disciple. Discipleship demands more than belief does. It requires that we go with our whole life into something. So if Matthew was going to be a disciple of Jesus, it meant that he had to believe and behave, not to be loved, but to reflect the love of the one who was calling him. He couldn't just say, yeah, I believe you, but I'm going to sit here. This deal with the Roman government, Jesus, is just too good to pass up. But that's where we stop short in our Christian faith sometimes. We stop short with belief, and it doesn't transform our behavior. So Matthew couldn't say, I'm just going to sit here and keep ripping people off. He also couldn't say, I'm going to come with you and refuse to be transformed. It was, you stay here and do what you're doing, or you come with me and be different. That is the call on the life of a disciple, and Jesus calls us our, his disciples. We are his disciples. So when we look at our own life, as we are growing in our relationship with God, we have to say each day when I come to him, how am I different because of it? How am I different in my interactions with him. It's an intimate encounter. Have you ever looked at the word intimacy from this perspective and seen this before? Intimacy equals into me, see. That we're going to allow God or anybody to see what's inside of us, deeply inside of us. That's, that's what it is. It means to live in relationship with others, fully being who we are without the fear of rejection. That's all it is. You see, leaving his post, for Matthew to leave his post with the Romans um, as one who had unjustly divested the hard-earned money of so many Jewish people uh, to follow Jesus, that was going to cost him greatly. Following Jesus for Matthew was going to cost him greatly. He had more on the line than even the fishermen who could have just gone back to fishing. Because fishing wasn't a despised practice of the Jewish people. They could have gone back. They had a backup plan. If Matthew was going to cut off the relationship with the Roman government, it was cut off. And he could not go back to his profession of ripping off his own people. It was going to cost him greatly. Sometimes there's a fallback plan in our walk with the Lord. And then sometimes there's just not. There's not. You just go, and you trust he's going to meet you on the journey. He could never go back. This invitation was to leave a secure position to join a discipleship cohort full of people that hated him. Like, this is not a compelling invitation. Hey, do you want to come hang out with me and everyone else who hates your guts? By the way, it's only going to cost you your livelihood forever. That's it. That's all it's going to cost you. Right? Like, this moment... But Matthew took the risk with the carpenter. It's what's so compelling. He took the risk. He left it all, walked away in public. 
knowing that he wouldn't be invited to the feast unless the feast was at his house. And who would he invite to the feast? He didn't know a righteous person that would come. So he invited all the sinners. So he knew. You want to plan for evangelism? Go hang out with sinners that don't know believers. And just love them like Jesus loves them too. Just do that. You want to see a harvest of people? Just accept people from right where they're at. And as soon as he did, Jesus went to work on two things. When we become disciples, when we move from a place of belief to a place of life transformational change, God starts working in a few different places. He begins to work on our identity. We're a part of a new family now. Immediately, not because of our behavior. We're just trying to be part of this family, Matthew. You're a train wreck. Come on. Bring your train wreck friends with you. We'll do something about it over time. He was a part of a new family. So Jesus went to work on his identity, and he went to work on Matthew's purpose. Identity and purpose. You heard us talk about that yet? Most recently? It's a part of identity and purpose. It's, it's what the, the discipleship plan Jesus put together is all about. You see, his purpose was repurposed, but his skill didn't change. Did you catch that? It's, it's in the Gospels, too. Matthew was a good recorder of things. He was a text collector, so he had to keep good records. So he had the same skill of recording how much money he was ripping off to the, from the Jewish people to recording the story of the one who would come to save the Jewish people. He just wrote down words instead of numbers. He was a recorder. So knowing this, as we grow as disciples of Jesus, sometimes it doesn't mean we got to give up a skill that we love. Roger, for years, has been changing the oil of wid widows in, in the community of the camp for to have their oil changed. He knows how to change oil in the car. That is an employable skill in the kingdom of heaven, if it's directed correctly. Everything is. If we point it towards the kingdom, there's use for it. Right? Matthew understood his assignment. He knew it would cost him from the get-go. He knew it wouldn't be easy, and he still said yes. And because he said yes, we are the direct beneficiaries of Matthew's obedience and his faithfulness. Because we're included. From our tribe, Matthew says to the Jewish people, for all tribes. From our tribe, for all tribes. tribes. That's the story. What we won't take time to talk about this morning, I just want to point out it, Zach, if you can put the next slide up here. The five sections of Matthew's teaching, which if you look at it, it's pretty interesting, were meant to reflect the five books of the Torah, the five, first five books, the Pentateuch of the Bible, because Matthew was trying to reach a Jewish audience. He's like, hey, here's five other things. Because they knew about Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, five made sense to them. He goes, let me give you another five. This is how my book is broken down, Jewish people, that God is announcing his kingdom in chapters 4 through 7. He's bringing kingdom people's lives back around. There's nine interactions Jesus had with people in chapters 8 through 10. Jesus navigates people's response to him because people had all sorts of different responses to him. He's the Messiah. Some said, is he the Messiah? And some said, he's not the Messiah. So everyone had an opinion about him. And can you imagine a society full of different opinions? Can't even begin to fathom it. He navigates people's expectations. I'm going to come as your leader, but it's going to look a lot different than you think it's going to. I'm going to give you a new definition of victory. 
And then he braces for the culture clash. The clash between the flesh and the spirit in the Garden of Gethsemane. I don't want that cross, Dad. I do not want it. If there's any other way around that cross, show me the way. But if there is not, then not my will be done, but yours be done. Damned flesh. Everything's about the spirit. Jesus modeled that for us, and we're just working to figure it out a little bit as we can. That you can investigate more within the, the video that we sent this last week. But I want to talk about Matthew's intent. Why did he write this book? What was he hoping to do when he recorded it? Did he know that people 2,000 years later would be in Everett, Washington reading it? His hope was to help the Jewish people understand Jesus as the promised Jewish Messiah. Because we know that the Jewish people are having problems with Jesus. So much so they killed him. So that's a problem. But he knew that Jesus was the promised Jewish Messiah prophesied through all of the Old Testament. And he was called to connect the Jewish people with that text. Now this is a rough assignment. Think about it. Especially when that's the crowd who most directly hated you was the crowd that you were called to go reach. Hated and despised by the Jews, and he's called to reach his own people. So Matthew was called to connect the Jewish people with their text. Matthew loved Yahweh. That's pretty clear. He understood. He'd been through the Jewish schools. He loved God. I've met a lot of messed up people on the streets who are at their wit's end, living under overpasses and... And in, in the midst of that, they tell me of their love for God, and I believe them. Because our behavior does not dictate whether or not we love Jesus. Definitely doesn't dictate whether or not he loves us. It just goes back to this Brendan Manning quote. I'll say it again to you. To live by grace means to acknowledge my whole life story. The light side and the dark. And admitting my shadow side, I learn who I am and what God's grace means. Matthew said it. Matthew said that Jesus said it. I didn't come for those who thought they were healthy. I came for those who knew they were sick. That's the first step in growing in a relationship with Jesus, is just admitting our sickness. And that's what he was doing. He goes, I love God, and look at me, how messed up my life is. He was simply a man lost in the culture. And Jesus was there to walk alongside him as he found his way back to a father that was worth returning. That's the story of Matthew. Finally, Matthew had to connect the Jewish people to Jesus through the Jewish scriptures. I have a friend named William. William has traveled the Middle East and all around the world proclaiming the gospel to the nation of Islam and those who are Muslim. But he goes, I only lead Muslims to Christ through the Quran. That's my text that I use to lead Muslims to Christ. It's the Quran. It's their own religious text. Because Jesus isn't an outlaw in Islam. He's a revered prophet. He's just not Muhammad. He's not the greatest prophet according to the Quran. If you have a chance to talk with anyone who had been previously part of the Muslim tradition, the Islamic faith, their encounters with Jesus are off. And they're often in person. Powerful. We can tell stories about that in this room. Even. So the same way Matthew's using the Old Testament scriptures, 
He quotes the Old Testament 99 times in his gospel. 99 times Jesus refers back to. Sorry, Matthew refers back to the prophetic word in the Old Testament. It's really a pretty neat thing. But here's the message. Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is from our tribe, Matthew says to his people, which is part one. And by the way, Jesus is for all tribes. That's part two. But the question we're going to look at today is how does your view of both yourself and others shift when you remember that Jesus is for all people? Ray Bakke, I've referred to him before as uh, someone I got to spend some time with recently, went home to see Jesus, but he was a missiologist. He lived in cities, most prominently Chicago, inner city Chicago for 35 years. He wrote a book called The Theology as Big as a City. I'll be reading this book for the rest of my life to try and make sense of it. But it is amazing. The premise of this book is that the Bible starts in a garden, but it ends in a city. And it's an urban blueprint for understanding how the gospel works in urban contexts. It's a great Great read. And I want to share just a little bit about some of his insights on texts that are often pretty obscure. How many people have just wept at the beauty of reading Matthew chapter 1 before? It's easily forgettable, at least the first 17 verses, because it's just a long list of genealogies. One name after the next, after the next, after the next, after the next. If you don't believe me, look it up. It looks like a phone book. We often skip over it. Yes, Matthew's cemetery tour is what he calls Matthew chapter 1. It's a long genealogy linking Abraham to David, David to the exile, and the exile to the promised Messiah. But here's the thing. If you're going to convince a pious group of people about the credibility of the one that you're proposing to be the savior of the world, human wisdom would lead you to polish up that genealogy as much as possible. We want to convince a group of do-gooders that Jesus is the way. We're going to write only about the people in this gospel who were really shiny and righteous in their own sight. But that's not what Matthew does. I want to read to you a little bit from this text. It says, the opening paragraph of our cemetery tour takes us, Matthew's reader, to four very ancient graves in the oldest section of Israel's burial ground. The names include Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Uriah's wife. But later in this chapter, Matthew goes on to tell the story of how the Virgin Mary became Jesus' mother. A rather scandalous story at that. Rahab, Ruth, and Bathsheba, all included in the genealogy, are what I call the grandmothers of Christmas past. Tamar had an affair with Judah. Rahab, the mother of Boaz, ran a low-lit, seedy hotel in Jericho and was probably an active participant in the activities there. We don't hear about Ruth's sinful past, but we know that she came from the family tree of Sodom. And we know that Ruth was the mother of Obed, who was the father of Jesse, who was the father of King David, who was the father of Solomon, the son of Bathsheba. And we know all about David and Bathsheba. Interesting. So it goes on to talk about why these four women are recorded in the text. And some would say, well, because they were sinners. So I'm like, well, that's not fair. All the guys in the text were sinners too. So there must be something else. There must be another reason for these four women in these texts. And I want to read to you a little bit more just out of Ray's book here. This is what it says. I can't say it any better than he would say it without plagiarizing, so I'll just read it. 
Luther was the first one who noticed in print that all four women were not just women, they were not just sinners, but they were foreigners. Two were Canaanites, Tamar and Rahab. Ruth was a Moabite. Bathsheba was presumably a Hittite. These texts are about missions. Stephen Neal, long-term missionary in India and mission historian, wrote a marvelously helpful book called The Interpretation of the New Testament, in which he amplifies Luther's view that these women represent Matthew's foreign missions concern. Neal suggests that there is an international parenthesis around Matthew's gospel. Chapter 28 tells the disciples to go into all the world, preach the gospel, and disciple all peoples. But Matthew 1 helps us remember that who the world's peoples were at the time. They included Canaanites, Moabites, Hittites, and Jews, among others. In a tongue-in-cheek fashion, Raymond Brown of Union Seminary offers another idea. Perhaps Matthew provides pastoral care for Mary by bringing together all the scandalous birth stories as a kind of historical support group. Because Mary was having a very difficult time explaining where her own baby came from. So Mary, you're not alone. That's the message. Jesus, on his human side, was the product of an international family tree. I would also note another common element that all four of these women took initiative, acted remarkably, and with courage, and received divine approval. Matthew is making an important theological statement about Jesus. On his divine side, Jesus was the virgin-born Son of God. Let there be no doubt about that. The creeds point to the virgin birth. But on the human side, Matthew reminds us that Jesus was also very human indeed. He choreographed into his own earthly body all the most theologically sinful bloodlines in the Middle East. In a very real sense, this opening paragraph smashes racism. Jesus was a mixed racial savior of the world. Now here's the Christmas and Easter, here's how Christmas and Easter connect for Matthew. Jesus not only got his blood from the world, he also shed his blood on the cross for the world. Isn't that remarkable? What happens with some of these texts that we just pass over? Matthew's cemetery tour. I thank God for the way that he spoke to Ray Bakke and the way Ray saw these things and the hidden portions of the text. Jesus, like Matthew, wasn't interested in hiding any part of his history. The whole thing on full display because I have come to save the sinner. This is Matthew's gospel speaking to a pious group of people. Jesus was from their tribe, but he was for all tribes. Matthew 28, 16-20, flip there. This is the book-ended side, the back book-ended side of this whole gospel. We learn about the bloodline of Jesus from the very beginning. It was crucially important that Jesus be blood-related all the way back to Adam. That just matters for the story. He's the new Adam. He's the new Moses. He's everything that the Old Testament prophesied about a Savior that would come to save God's oldest friends, the Jews. Jesus is from us, but he is also for the nations. Jesus gives the Great Commission. Matthew 28, verse 16 through 20. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus 
had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. From our tribe, for all tribes. If you can remember that about the Gospel of Matthew, that Jesus took the seediest member of their community, transformed his life, not as a believer, but as a disciple who sacrificed much to follow Jesus, who was open with his own brokenness enough to make that the feature story in his own gospel about himself, was that he was a tax collector who hung out with sinners and sold out his own people. And he was confident enough in the grace of Jesus to proclaim that as the most powerful thing that he could say about the gospel. And then he said, it's not just for us, guys. It's for everybody. So let's get our act together. Now let's invite the world into the hope of the gospel. As you go, make disciples. As you go, make disciples. Discipleship is an on-the-way process. It's not a classroom process. We're hearing more and more from people who understand how the gospel is going to be transmitted to a generation of people who do not yet know him. To say that for pastors, this tool right here, this preaching a message from the front to the seats, is a tool of discipleship. And it's also the least powerful tool in our tool belt. Because we come here and then we go. But unless we're going together... Unless we're connecting with people and beginning the discipleship process in people's lives before they even know what it is to come and sit in this room, if they ever come sit in this room, to see people along the way is really, really a significant thing. And to invite them into a story. Matthew got invited into the story and followed Jesus before he professed Jesus. That's important for us to remember. As we go, we make disciples. It's going to be a mess, and that's okay. It's going to be okay to get involved in the mess of people's lives. And boy, aren't they messy. We have messy lives. But he's going to take care of that for us. Amen? We're going to get into groups for a few minutes and talk about these few questions. Zach, if you could put the next questions up. Let's take a few minutes in our discussion group. Matthew was called by Jesus to reach a group of people he had swindled and cheated. What is one of the more challenging things Jesus has asked you to do in your life as a disciple? Secondly, how does your view of both yourself and others shift when you remember that Jesus' love is for all of you? Alright? Let's go have some intentional discipleship conversations, share our stories with each other, be encouraged, pray for one another, and hit the road for another six days. Amen?